so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Tonight we're going to veer away from our uh, Rooms to Know series just for the evening, and we're going to focus on this one verse, this well-known biblical passage, because in it we learn two important truths. But before we venture into what this passage teaches us about love, I want to make a couple of observations first. The truth is we know what love is. Love is this deep affection for someone else that causes you to behave illogically. That's what love is. And, 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 and love, in that regards, is most apparent in the life of parents, particularly when they have infants and toddlers. Of course, I'm reminded of that because I do still have a toddler. But parents, we, we do things out of love for our infants, for our toddlers, that, that we would not do under normal circumstances. Hey, think about it for a moment. In fact, raise your hand if you have ever just stopped to watch a baby sleep for more than two minutes. Now, I want you to think about how illogical that is. Imagine your college child is at home for Labor Day weekend, and in the middle of the night, he or she wakes up to find you hovering over them, staring as they sleep. How illogical is that? But we do it. We do that for our babies because we are mesmerized by their existence. And we so adore them, we so love them, that we can't stand to be apart from them. Or let's think about this one. Raise your hand. You have ever given a baby a bottle, then burped the baby, and once said burp had been released, you told that baby how good the burp was. Now think about how illogical that is. I'm certain there's no mama here who's sitting at a restaurant on Sunday afternoon with their family, and their 16-year-old boy lets out a nice little belch, and she turns to him and says, that was a good one, I'm proud of you. And if there is a mama here who does that, we need to talk. See, we're illogical. But we, we do that to, to an infant because we love them and we want what's best for them. And we know that the release of that air will keep them from being uncomfortable and keep them from hurting. And we want that for them. Or think about this one. Raise your hand. If your child or a child has ever started to take steps in front of you, fell down, and you cheered for him or her. Now think about how illogical this is. The child takes, makes an attempt to walk and fails, and we start celebrating. Yay! You took a step and fell and, 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 fell and failed, but I'm proud of you for attempting it. You didn't succeed, but good job! You wouldn't do that for an adult. You see, love makes us do things that are illogical. And I, I want us to consider that tonight. Because everything about what God has done for us is illogical. The other thing I want you to know about love, or the other thing I want you to think about love, is that even though we know what love is, even though we have experienced love, we tend to water it down. You see, out of the same mouth, I might say, 
I love my daughters. And then I'll turn around and say, I love cheesecake. Now, does that mean that I feel the same way about cheesecake as I do Micah and Leah? No. I heard a yes. That is not true. Now, I will say I did not use Chick-fil-A in this illustration for a reason. No, but we use love. We'll pronounce love on foods. We'll pronounce love on movies. We'll pronounce love on locations. We'll pronounce love on inanimate objects. And then we'll pronounce it on a person. But do we really feel the same way about our children or our spouses or our significant others as we do some food that we will digest and remove eventually? No. See, we water down love a lot because we abuse the term. But here's the thing. We only have one term to use. You have heard before, more than likely, that in the Greek language, they had a few different terms for love. I don't want to make too much out of that tonight, but I, I want you to think, in the Greek language, they had, at a minimum, four different terms for love. They, they had a, a term that, that addressed uh, family love, the love that exists within the family unit, the love you have towards your parents or your children or your brothers and sisters. They had a term for love that was specific to the marriage relationship, a, a passionate love that, that finds its fulfillment in, in two people who are attracted to each other and have, have made a commitment to each other and have a, a, an intimate relationship with each other. And then you have a different term for, for what we, we call kinship love, friend love, love, love of a dear friend and that, that connection that comes between two people. And then they have the high form of love as it has been called. The term that you may know of as agape or the, the, the term for that unconditional self-sacrificing love. It's the term that, that it appears throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and that whole chapter that dedicates to itself to a definition of love. So the, the Greek language had all these different words to give context to what kind of love it's talking about. And they will be at times used interchangeably in the Greek language. Even in our own New Testament, they get used interchangeably. But they existed and showed an understanding in that culture that love takes different forms. We tend to water love down because we only have the term, the one term for it. And so as we approach John chapter 3 and verse 16... I want us to understand that we know what love is and we need to appreciate it in its ultimate form. Because it's John 3.16 that tells us how much God loves us and who it is that God loves. See, I want to start with that first thing. John 3.16 tells us who God loves. God so loved the world. Now, the text doesn't say that God so loved the Christians. The text doesn't say that God so loved the church. The text doesn't say that God so loved those who obey him. The text says that God so loved the world. Now consider for a moment what the world is associated with throughout Scripture. Throughout the Bible, the world is associated with everything that is unrighteous, ungodly, and unholy. And yet that's that's who John 3.16 says God loves. You know, according to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, the world, the world is associated with sin since sin came into the world through one man. 
First John chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 says, uh, indicates that the world is associated with temptations since the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life are from the world. Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 33 and 34, indicate that the world is associated with the cares, concerns, or anxieties that distract from one's focus on God. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 19, says that the world is associated with foolishness. All these things are associated with the world, and yet that's who God loves. Why is the world associated with so much that is wrong? If God is its creator, he pronounced that it was good, and he loves it. Well, it's because the world is under the influence of the devil. There is one operating in the world who exerts great influence on the world, one who the world is said to be following in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2. He's referred to as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He is referred to as the god of this world, the deceiver of the whole world, the evil one. And scripture even says that the whole world lies in his power. Yet that does not change God's affection for the world. So when John chapter 3 and verse 16 says that God so loved the world... What it's ultimately saying is that God's love is inclusive. In other words, his love includes even those who would be classified as his enemy. The point is that God's love was and is extended to everyone who falls under his jurisdiction. That includes those who disobey him, those who mock him, those who oppose him, those who reject him, and yes, even those who hate him. It doesn't change his love for them. The language of the New Testament communicates God's love for and redemption actions toward not just those who do right, but everyone in this world. Think about it. Who did John the Baptist say Jesus was in John chapter 1, verse 29? He said he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or think about what Jesus, why Jesus said he came into the world in John chapter 12, and verse 47. He said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19 that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. And John said, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then in verse chapter 4 and verse 14 of the same letter, he said that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. My point is that all of these passages infer God's great love for and God's actions to redeem the world, not just those who claim association with them. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that everyone in the world is going to be saved. You see, even though that God's love is inclusive, salvation is ultimately exclusive because there are conditions that must be met in order to receive it. But God 
loves everyone. Not just the ones who show up at the church building on Sundays. Not just the ones who put on the name of Christ in baptism. Not just the ones who choose to obey Him. God loves everyone. We need not forget that. That's the first thing we can learn from John chapter 3 and verse 16. But there is something else we can learn from John chapter 3 and verse 16 about God's love. It defines how He loves us. You look at that verse and it says, God so loved the world. It didn't just say God loves the world. God so loved the world. That Greek word being translated here literally means in this manner. So in the context of this verse, the word so is an indicator of the way in which God loved the world. It's emphasizing that his love was abundant, that his love is magnificent, that his love is above and beyond expectation. And I want to share with you four ways God loves you. First, God loves you and the world eternally. In other words, God's love has no end. God's love endures forever. As Jeremiah poetically described in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 through 24, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. In other words, God doesn't fall out of love with people. God doesn't fall out of love with people. His love is constant and unchanging. There never was a time when God did not love you, nor will there ever be a time when God does not love you. God's love is eternal. The second thing you need to know about God's love is that it is merciful. God loves you and the world mercifully. In other words, God's love is not fair, and that's a good thing. It means that God's love holds no grudges. It forgets when it forgives. As David declared in Psalm chapter 108, verse 8 through 12, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as, oh, I left off the second half of this verse, so we'll stop there. Sometimes, sometimes it's easy for us to think, to think of God only in terms of his relationship to his people, whether that be the nation of Israel in the Old Testament or the church in the New. Because it makes sense for God to love those who love him in return. That's logical to us. That's fair. That's natural. That's to be expected. But Jesus indicated that God that God's love, God's love operates on a different system of fairness. If you look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43, Jesus is speaking and he quotes part of Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now here's what stands out to me about this passage. 
in order for you and I to associate with God as sons or daughters, this passage says we have to love our enemies. Why is that a necessity? Because God loved even his enemies. In that same passage of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes on to criticize our concept of fairness. After he tells us that we need to love our enemies in order to be sons of our Father who is in heaven, he goes on to say, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus here says that the world whether that be in terms of the tax collectors or the Gentiles, the world knows how to love on a fairness scale. But true love, love that is modeled after God himself, is love that loves despite whether or not it's fair. And that's exactly how God's love is toward the world. God loves the world including you and I, unfairly. Not because he's not fair. It's really because we're not. Because he loves us even if we don't love him back. He loves us even if there's nothing that we bring to the table. He loved us before we loved him. His love is merciful because it doesn't require a system of fairness in order for it to operate. So God's love is eternal, merciful, and it's unconditional. That's the third thing I want you to know about God's love. God's love is not based on your performance. God loves you in spite of your performance, actually. This is depicted in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, where Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Paul is saying is there is nothing you can do to make God love you more than he does right now, and there is nothing you can do to make God love you less than he does right now. God's love is not conditioned on what you do or don't do. Salvation is, but God's love is not. In fact, God's love was directed toward us, poured out on us before we were ever deserving of it. Just a couple of chapters earlier in Romans, you go back to chapter 5, Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, Paul said that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know what that means? That means that our sins may separate us from God's presence, but they do not separate us from his love. So those who choose to go to hell will go there still being loved by God. It's no wonder. It's no wonder then that in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, we're told that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell because he loves them. Unfortunately, 
Some are going to choose to go to hell despite the fact that he loves them. God's heart still yearns for the lost. It breaks God's heart to think that someone he loves is not going to spend eternity with him in heaven. Because God loves us unconditionally. And the last thing you need to know about God's love is that he loves us sacrificially. One thing you learn very quickly as a parent is that having a child requires sacrifice. You sacrifice your finances. You sacrifice your sleep. You sacrifice your hobbies. Sometimes you even sacrifice your own food. And here's the thing. When you become a parent, there's not really anything you're unwilling to sacrifice for the sake of your children. Here's the thing. If I were asked to sacrifice one of my daughters for any of you today, I'm not so sure I could do it. Just being honest. But that's exactly what God did. Listen to the words of Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. Paul said that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Unlike me, God unhesitatingly made the sacrifice of his son for the benefit of the world, for the benefit of those who might even hate his son, because he loves sacrificially. To highlight this last point, I want to share with you a well-known allegory, one that you've probably heard before called the drawbridge keeper. There was once a drawbridge that spanned a large river. During most of the day, the bridge set with its length running up and down the river, paralleled with the banks, allowing ships to pass through freely on both sides of the bridge. But at certain times each day, a train would come along and the bridge would be turned sideways across the river, allowing the train to cross it. A switchman sat in a shack on one side of the river where he operated the controls to, the turn, to turn the bridge and lock it into place as the train crossed. One evening as the switchman was waiting for the last train of the day to come, he looked off into the distance through the dimming twilight and caught sight of the train lights. He stepped onto the control and waited until the train was within a prescribed distance. Then he was to turn the bridge. He turned the bridge into position, but to his horror he found the locking control did not work. If the bridge was not securely in position, it would cause the train to jump the track and go crashing into the river. And this was a passenger train coming with many people on board. So he left the bridge, turned across the river, and hurried across the bridge to the other side of the river, where there was a lever switch he could hold to operate the lock manually. He would have to hold the lever back firmly as the train crossed. And he could hear the rumble of the train now, and he took hold of the lever and leaned back to apply his weight to it, locking the bridge in place. And he kept applying the pressure to keep the mechanism locked. Many lives depended on this man's strength. And at that moment, coming across the bridge from the direction of his control shack, he heard a sound that made his blood run cold. Daddy, where are you? His four-year-old son was crossing the bridge to look for him. And his first impulse was to cry out to the child to run, but the train was too close. His tiny legs would never make it across the bridge in time. 
the man almost left his lever to catch his son and carry him to safety, but he realized that he could not get back to the lever in time if he saved his son. In other words, he was faced with a choice. Either the people on the train would die or his own son would die. He took but a moment to make his decision. The train sped safely and swiftly on its way, and no one aboard was even aware of the tiny body thrown mercilessly into the river by the onrushing train. Nor were they aware of the pitiful figure of the sobbing man still clinging to the locking lever after the train had passed. It's but an allegory, a man-made story to help illustrate a point. But it helps depict what our Lord did for us when he sent Jesus to this earth to be killed on the cross in a fashion that many people may never pay attention to. See, when John chapter 3 and verse 16 says that God so loved the whole world, it means that God loves everyone so much that there wasn't anything he wouldn't do to save them. Every once in a while, we just need to be reminded of that simple fact, that our God loved us enough that he would send his son to die for just one of us. This evening, if that reminder of God's love is what you needed to hear, and it challenges you to change your life, then we invite you to come. See, it's through the blood of Jesus that we can have our sins removed, and it's through the blood of Jesus that we can be born anew. And we can come in contact with the blood of Jesus by confessing our faith that he is the risen Son of God, by repenting of our sins, and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. Maybe tonight you need to make that decision and let the blood of Jesus wash you clean. Maybe tonight you're here as a child of God. You've already experienced that cleansing by his blood. But you're not living as you ought to. You're not representing him the way you should. You're not following in his steps. Maybe you need our prayers. Maybe you need our help. Maybe you just need to turn back to the Lord. Whatever your need is, we invite you to come.